Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst, author, and scholar, George Hoganson. Dr. Hoganson holds a PhD in philosophy from Yale University and a master's degree in clinical social work from the University of Chicago. He completed his training as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, where he is now a senior training analyst. He served as president of the society from 2007 to 2009. He currently serves on the executive committee of the International Association for Analytical Psychology and is a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Analytical Psychology. A graduate of St. Olaf College, he studied with the Buddhist philosopher Masao Abe and the Zen master Seikyun Koritsune in Kyoto, Japan, before entering the master's program in East Asian Languages and Literatures at Yale. Following completion of his PhD, Dr. Hoganson was on the faculty of the Yale School of Management and a member of Yale's Institute for Social and Policy Studies. He has lectured and published extensively, both in the United States and in Europe, on the relationship between depth psychology and recent advances in cognitive science, neuropsychology, and artificial intelligence. He is the author of Jung's Struggle with Freud and co-editor of The Red Book, Reflections on C.G. Jung's Liber Novus. This interview was recorded on March 9, 2016, at a public library in Chicago, which is why you'll occasionally hear children and the elevator in the background. I apologize for the distraction. Dr. Hoganson, you said that you got into Jung in a way that's a little bit different. Well, you frequently hear, and it's it's perfectly legitimate to uh, hear people say that in, in one way or another they encountered Jung and became immediately quite fascinated by him, mm-hmm. uh, frequently through uh, reading Memory Streams Reflections, or um, occasionally some one of the other books, uh, Man and His Symbols, or a variety of things like that. I um, did not take that route in the sense that I, uh, I had returned to the graduate school at Yale in 1975. I'd been there earlier, 70 to 71, in the Department of East Asian Languages mm-hmm. and Literatures. I came back in the philosophy department in 1975. What had happened in 1971, when I left Yale, I had taken, I'd bought uh, Paul Ricoeur's big book on Freud called Freud and Philosophy. And the four years that I was away, I was in the Air Force, and I spent, uh, I I went through Ricoeur's book in great detail on Freud. Ricoeur, of course, being one of the foremost philosophers of religion uh, at that time. And I was quite fascinated, so I had begun uh, working on Freud in some depth during that time. When I got back to Yale in 75, um, I was aware of Jung, through some friends uh, who had been, uh, one, one of whom had been in analysis with a very prominent Jungian analyst. And so I started reading some Jung, and uh, I was actually taking a course on Leibniz, philosopher Leibniz, from um, Professor Rulon Wells. And I used some material from Jung's theory of synchronicity in writing a term, a seminar paper on Leibniz. 
And a couple of years later, I had come to the conclusion that I wanted to do my dissertation under Professor Wells, who was a quite extraordinary man, a professor of philosophy and linguistics at Yale. And I went to him to talk about possible dissertation topics, and um, he uh, finally told me that he was particularly interested in, in directing a dissertation on Jung, mm. because he had previously directed dissertations on Freud and Jacques Lacan, the French psychoanalyst. So we began working on Jung, and, and again, there's various twists and turns in there, as, as, as always the case with a dissertation, but I, uh, as, as we progressed, it became evident that, uh, well, put it this way, I'd originally intended to work on Jung's interest in the alchemists, but that's the middle portion of the Jungian corpus, that his work on the alchemists doesn't really begin until the mid-1930s and yeah. 1940s. And uh, I found out that I could never quite get there without looking back at earlier work. And then when you mm -hmm. go back to earlier work, you go back to even earlier work, and pretty soon you're back in the relationship between Freud and Jung. Yeah. And, and so we, we revised our objectives, and um, I wrote my dissertation on Jung and Freud, uh, which after very, very heavy editing and rewriting eventually turned into the book uh, Jung's struggle with Freud. Mm -hmm. So I sort of backed into Jung that way, and um, uh, I have never had the uh, feeling that many people report, and I think which is, is quite legitimate, I've never quite had the feeling that upon reading Jung, uh, I've suddenly had a great revelation that this is the, an the answer to all of right. my life's questions. Right. That, that may be an exaggeration, but I've always approached Jung uh, from a, a more critical uh, standpoint, I think he's an extraordinary thinker, and you need to look at him that way. Um, in 1986, um, I moved to Chicago, and in the course, uh, and while I was here, then I um, had a very, very good friend who's a who's a who's a, a, a well-known therapist in town. We'd known each other for many years. And he said, well, you know, you've done, you've written this material and you keep studying, so why don't you try being a clinician? So that's when I went to the University of Chicago uh, School of Social Work, and I took an evening class on adult psychopathology, which I found utterly fascinating. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, I concentrated on getting, first getting a degree, a clinical degree, which is necessary to do an analytic training right. in the United States now. And um, then going on to my analytic training. So I've been a clinician for 25, almost 30 years mm -hmm. at this point. The original impetus to work on Jung was more from a scholarly standpoint rather than from the standpoint of um, initially trying to necessarily uh, you know, uh, deepen my own personal experience, which is very much the way in which uh, quite a few people who are quite a few analysts and others approach Jung. So I've always had a, a very strong grounding in the historical and critical scholarly uh, examination of what Jung's work is and trying to, a lot of my writing and, and my own research is trying to explicate what Jung is doing when he proposes, for example, a theory of the theory of archetypes. 
what is what are we really talking about when we talk about an archetype? What are we really talking about when we talk about synchronicity? As soon as I turned to the clinical side of things, I realized that uh, there was a whole a whole another dimension, not only to, a whole another dimension opened up for understanding Jung. You began to see much 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 deeper into what it is he's doing. When you do you, you when you have that clinical side, there's a there's a funny little issue that uh, has become. <clears throat> I think we're resolving it now in the in the larger Jungian community for uh, many many years. I mean, I my book on Jung and Freud, for example, was one of very few um, what you might call scholarly works on Jung available for many years. Now in the last. Uh, 15 years or so, in, particularly in England, there's a program that grew up at Essex University, and there are a couple of others which have been training, uh, providing an opportunity for scholars who are not clinicians to uh, earn advanced degrees uh, in, uh, that concentrate on uh, Jungian or, or other psychoanalytic matters. So. There's been a kind of an explosion in the last 15 years of, of very, very high quality scholarly work on Jung, and other, by which I mean, for example, books that track the influences of, um, of um, Schiller or Schelling, uh, various philosophers, various other uh, precursors to Jung's work track how he uh, in, engages them, how he uses material from previous thinkers and so on. So it's a very scholarly project. For a while, uh, there was a kind of odd standoff, you might almost say, or, or a certain amount of, of tension between the analysts who for uh, you know, many, many years had been, the, by and large, the only people commenting on Jung right. and this emerging group of scholars, I had the unusual, I was in the unusual position of having a foot in both both camps, yes. you might say, because I had, I was one of the most, uh, one of the earliest scholarly writers on Jung, and now, and now I was an analyst by the time this began happening. So, uh, for a little while there, the scholars weren't too sure about the analysts. The analysts weren't too sure about the scholars. Uh, it was a little bit of um, uh, who who has the, who has the right to say the most about about Jung. I think that that's resolving itself now, and everyone's beginning to get on the same page and recognize the contributions that they can all make. But there was a uh, there was a period there when uh, if you weren't a clinician. From the standpoint of the analysts, if you weren't an analyst, you you were somehow uh, not entirely qualified to comment on Jung. And then the scholars came along and said, "Well, uh, you analysts have just been sort of um, uh, you, you you don't have the scholarly skills and and tools necessary to really get deep into his texts." Mm -hmm. Like I say, that's begun to resolve itself. Your PhD thesis on Jung's relationship with Freud was published. It was published in 1983. I completed it in 1979. I, I wrote the dissertation, and the dissertation formed the foundation for the book. The, you know, the real uh, textual um, foundation for the book is actually, the, in many respects, the correspondence between Freud and Jung. They, they originated, their, their relationship was actually quite brief. 
depending a little bit on how you calculated it, it was between six and seven years that they mm -hmm. were together, which was not an enormous amount of time. Right. But in that period of time, they exchanged letters on an almost daily basis. So we do have uh, quite an extraordinary record of the relationship in that. And then yes. uh, you also see in their principal uh, publications during that period, 1906 to, uh, again, a little bit on how you, how you figure it, uh, 1912, 1913, and then subsequently, um, you, you see their publications uh, increasingly fencing with one another. Of course, the relationship is very famous. It's also very poorly understood by most mm -hmm. people. Um, you really can't say, for example, that uh, you'll, you'll hear these expression sometimes, Jung was Freud's disciple, Jung was Freud's student. Um, the analyst or the, the historian uh, and therapist uh, John uh, Kerr, uh, who wrote this big book, uh, Most Dangerous Method, which was of course turned into a somewhat unfortunate movie, right. um, John Kerr uh, basically remarks that uh, at, the t at the beginning of their relationship, Freud needed Jung more than Jung needed Freud. In the course of looking at the material, and we can come back around and talk about more details mm -hmm. about it, but it became fairly clear, I identified several aspects of the two systems that were very important in terms of, of how, why and how they were uh, at loggerheads with one another eventually. Mm -hmm. They didn't really realize it at the beginning, but many of the issues that eventually led to the break between the two of them were actually there from the beginning. And I think both of them, each for their own reasons, did a uh, tremendous, put an awful lot of effort into not recognizing the differences between them. Mm -hmm. The main ones that I identified at the time, and I've subsequently wanted to add a, a fourth uh, primary distinction. One was uh, the, uh, and, and maybe even a fifth, I suppose, but one was the, um, the, the basis of Freud's system, Freud's theory, really rests very heavily on the idea of repression. And repression was probably uh, one of the greatest stumbling blocks for Freud in getting his theories accepted. There were many, many stumbling blocks, but this was an important one that he really couldn't uh, provide evidence for the kind of repression that he wanted to talk about, by which, I mean, so you have to understand that the basis of Freud's system, one, one of the critical elements in Freud's system is that any material that is in the unconscious is originally in consciousness and gets pushed into the unconscious by way of repression. Jung, at the time, was doing work on the word association test. Mm -hmm. And in fact, his work on the word association test was uh, extraordinarily important. He completely changed. The word association test had been around for 50 or 60 years as an important psychological tool, but he really transformed its significance by uh, adding all a whole, uh, whole array of, uh, of measures to what was actually happening with a person when they had a, a, an anomaly in their association process. So you're saying that the word association test existed. He didn't develop it. He, no, no, he, he modified didn't. it. He didn't. It had, it had started in, <clears throat> in England 
with uh, some some research that was going on there, it had become a, a major element in in German experimental psychology mm -hmm. under Wilhelm Wundt and and uh, and others. But what they were primarily looking at was the was the way in which an association was made. In other words, what kind of words words were associated with one another. Jung added um, and designed the actually designed the equipment for galvanic skin response, cardiopulmonary response, and ways of measuring these things. He had basically turned the word association test into the first lie detector. And in fact, used it in a couple of court cases. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he, the word association test had been around for a long time. And Eugen Bleuler, who was the head of the uh, Burgolsley uh, psychiatric clinic where Jung was doing what we would call a residency, uh, amongst other things, had Jung and some of the other doctors there working diligently on this. Uh, the other thing that he did, that Bleuler did, was uh, as he had his students uh, or his his residents reading uh, all kind all of the current literature in psychology and psychiatry. And Jung, it's important to understand with Jung, Jung was an extraordinarily voracious reader, mm -hmm. and he went through everything. But one of the things that he was assigned to read by Bleuler right off, it must have been. A, literally the day he arrived at the Berkholsley, was Freud's very recently published interpretation of dreams. So the, the Zurich psychiatrists at the Berkholsley knew about Freud and were following his early writings because they were basically following everything. And Jung, um, as he did worked on the word association test, he came to the conclusion that he in fact had empirical data that pointed towards something that looked like Freud's notion of repression. So a big part of the original connection between Freud and Jung, because Jung was getting these, the, he was measuring these lapses in association. So you give a person an association word like house, and they pause for 10 seconds before they give you a response. And not only do they pause, but their galvanic skin response goes all over the place. Their heart beat goes all over the place. Uh, things begin to happen, and you be, and you and what he begins to what Jung realizes is that there's a strong emotional, a strong affective dimension to these lapses in association, and they involve the entire organism, the whole body. Mm -hmm. And then what he does is he, he says, well, okay, look, um, so uh, he sits down with these people, say they've had a big lapse, you say, you say home, and, and it, it, they come up with a, either a very odd response or these other measures of their affective response are off kilter. So he sits down with them and says, well, tell, tell, me, tell me about your, you know, your home life. And he begins to do a kind of, uh, I wouldn't say primitive necessarily, but the simple analysis of why the lapse took place. And he begins to find out, well, you know, my father was an alcoholic and, and had a very unfortunate home life. And now he begins to see that there's, there's real psychological causes for these lapses. 
And he says, he writes to Freud in 1906 and sends him a collection of his papers on the word association test and basically says, I think you'll find these interesting. And the implication there is I've, I've solved your problem. You know, I'm, mm. you're, you're telling people about repression, but they're all saying we have no evidence for that. It seems like something you, Professor Freud, just cooked up to explain phenomena, and now Jung comes along and basically says, I've got empirical data. I've got experimental data that looks like Freud's idea of repression. So that's kind of how they get started. Right. And they were both very interested in being seen as scientists. Is that Oh, absolutely. That right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, Jung, Jung, of course, had, uh, as you can read in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, and, and, and don't get me wrong, when I say I didn't get started with Memories, Dreams, Reflections, it's, it remains a very important book, although it, it is, there are complexities to it that uh, you, you have to work your way through mm -hmm. to, to, to understand everything that's is and is not going on mm. in memories, dreams, reflections. However, um, and importantly, as, as time goes on, uh, Jung's earlier childhood experiences and his dissertation on, on so-called occult phenomena and so on and so forth. So he's coming in with quite an array of, of material to the relationship with Freud. But the the first thing is, uh, Dr. Freud, you know, here are my papers on word association. I think you'll find them interesting. Freud writes back and says, thank you for sending that. I've already acquired the volume that has these things. So Freud is aware of what's going on in Zurich. And uh, so they start corresponding with one another. So, um, uh, my so Freud, Freud already knew. Freud already knew of Jung. Jung was a Jung was already uh, becoming a pretty big deal, yeah, um, because of the word association test studies. This was a a major uh, advancement in the experimental work with psychiatric disorders or psychological disorders. So he was he Jung was already already had a reputation. And indeed, yes, they both, uh, Freud insists on referring to psychoanalysis as a science. Jung is, in fact, doing science. Certainly in this early period, in this early period, Jung is by far and away the more meticulous scientist. Mm. When, their, when their relationship begins, uh, there's no question that Jung is doing what we would recognize as high-end uh, experimental science at that time, experimental psychology. He's, he not only has uh, these various ways of measuring, he's doing what for the period, for that time, around the early, early part of the 20th century, was very sophisticated statistical analysis of his results. Mm -hmm. So everything he's doing at that point in terms of studying things like the word association test is very high quality science. What Freud is doing at that time is would not pass anyone's criteria for doing genuine science because he's he's working with very very small uh, sets. Now, one of the things in my book that became really a central issue uh, in the book, and which I do think is remains a central issue, and it's actually somewhat of a still a divide. Uh, between Freudians and Jungians is the degree to which Freud 
uh, Freud's primary uh, scientific subject was himself. So you have this, you have this self-analysis where he writes, uh, this is way before he meets, meets Jung, this is in the late uh, 1890s, he writes to Wilhelm Fleece, who was a very close friend of his at the time, although they eventually had a falling out. He writes to Fleece and says, I've, I've, I've done it, I've figured out uh, the key, the crucial thing here, uh, and it has to do with why uh, the, the play Oedipus, the Oedipus Rex, the Oedipus uh, myth, continues to have the compelling in, impact on us that it does. It's because we all, all people go through the same uh, mythological trajectory. In other words, he's, he, he, I, I derive this from my own self-analysis, basically, uh, that uh, we all or you could put it all men, but or it, he generalizes it, that we all have this impulse to, um, to displace the father and uh, basically have sex with mom. Mm -hmm. And which, he was using an N of one. He's using an N of one. Uh, and he, um, he then goes looking for this and of course one of the problems with the particularly Jung's early or Freud's early work is the degree to which he uh, he compels or in his his writing his writings on many of his cases have this this uh, quality of, of of shaping the data to uh, fit the theory. Now you you talk to uh, you know, devoted Freudian psychoanalysts, and they, they get very upset with that idea, but there, there's no getting around it. So you have this funny, uh, this funny situation, and there's a, there's a variety of things that, that um, Freud does in, in the theory building. He, he, writes, uh, he writes at one point, for example, that he, uh, he, feels, he felt, feels sorry for someone like Galileo, for example, when... Galileo can't really explain, does not have an explanation for why his, his you know, other scientists of that period refused to look through his telescope and see the moons of Jupiter. Uh, but I have, says Freud, I have an explanation for why people don't, don't accept my theories. Uh, it's because they are, the re resistance to the theory is actually a proof that the theory is right. So he has this little twist in there that says if if you if you reject the theory it's out of a out of another it's out of resistance if you accept the theory it's because you've seen how correct my theory is in other words he's got you both ways is, so, is any of this a result of who these people have surrounding themselves to keep them in check for instance, the people that were around Freud in his day when he was developing these theories, was he dogmatic? Was he a bit of a dictator? And oh, he, he was he was horribly dogmatic, uh, but most German professors were dogmatic. I mean, Jung could be quite dogmatic at times, so I don't want to draw an invidious comparison between the two of them. But Freud was alone for a very long time. Mm -hmm. He didn't have, he had Wilhelm Fleece for a while, um, and it's also uh, you can go deeper into into 
the backgrounds of both of these men and, and how their own backgrounds um, inf influenced their theory building. You have to remember that Freud was trained as a neurologist, uh, not as a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Uh, Jung, of course, was trained as a psychiatrist, and uh, he had therefore read extensively in what we would, you know, in, in the extent uh, psych psychiatric literature at the time. We but Jung is, or Freud is working by himself for a very long time. Uh, one of the reasons that Jung was so important to Freud was that prior to the contact with, with Jung, Freud's circle in Vienna, there was a small group of uh, doctors around Freud, they were not a, and, and Freud says this on a number of occasions, that he didn't find them to be a particularly intellectually stimulating group. Curiously enough, it's through Jung that three or four of the major, of, of the early Freudians who become very important, Abraham, Ernest jo uh, Jones, and Ferenczi, all came to the Bergolsley before they went to Freud. They came to the Bergolsley to train uh, at the Bergolsley, where Jung by this point was what we would call the, the chief resident. So they actually come into the world of psychoanalysis under the tutelage of Jung at the Bergolsley, who then sends, connects them to Freud. And they then become the central players around Freud. And they are the much more influential early Freudians than the people who had originally been around Freud. So there's a funny little connection. And they, of course, Jones uh, and Abraham in particular, become major forces uh, opposing Jung when the break begins to mm -hmm. take place. Yeah. So they really turn on Jung, who had been their original mentor and, and their avenue for introduction to Freud. Uh, as soon as as soon as they're out of that that Bergolsley, uh environment, so you know there, there's an awful lot of frankly really vicious politics in the psychoanalytic world before this is all resolves itself. But getting getting back to this this Freudian uh, Freud, one of one of the problems that you're, you're going back to your question on on science. One of the problems that arises very early between Jung and Freud, and that Jung doesn't understand until it's, it's too late, he begins commenting on it fairly early on, is, is uh, the way that I read the relationship. Jung comes into the relationship, on the one hand, uh, his, his own unconscious drive towards it to some extent was that Jung had a uh, a real problem around needing a father figure mm -hmm. because his own father, as he recounts in um, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, he experienced his father as, as, a, as a, a weak and somewhat ineffectual man. There are some other things about the early relation, the, the, those early days uh, having to do with um, Jung being sexually abused as a child and, and one thing and another. But he clearly has, on the one hand, has a, a transference to Freud that's very much a father transference. And he, uh, in that degree, he sort of subordinates himself to Freud. And since it is a transference and it's driven by these un unconscious elements, of course, as, as, as the relationship progresses, 
that uh, unconscious complex that's working in the transference and in the countertransference uh, is the kind of thing that is, is going to lead to uh, catastrophes down the road because mm. it never gets adequately analyzed. Mm. On the other hand, uh, leaving that psychological thing to the side for a moment, Jung comes into the relationship with the idea that they are going to be progressing in what we might call a more normal scientific way, where you have a group of colleagues who work together to shape a theory as it unfolds. So running at virtually the same time uh, up in Copenhagen, you have Niels Bohr and, and the, the, quant the early quantum physicists, and they're all sort of bouncing off of each other and revising their ideas and writing papers and having arguments, and that leads to what we would call a more normal scientific evolution of the understanding of quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. What's happening between Freud and Jung is that Freud... Freud is far less, if he is at all, but certainly far less uh, willing to um, proceed with this kind of uh, collaborative scientific investigation that leads to variations in, in, in the theory. He's quite tolerant at one level for a while. They're both trying to make this work. But Jung begins to realize at some point along the way that, uh, there, that Freud is not operating that way. Uh, Freud has his principles, his ideas about the way the psyche works, and it's very difficult to come in with another point of view on things and have Freud make any serious revisions to his theory on the basis of those kinds of interactions. Now, Freud revises his theory uh, many times along the way, but it, uh, there's, a, there's a way in which every time that Freud does make a change in his theory, it's because he's run into something himself that he can't reconcile yeah. anymore. So he has to, has to do something with it. There are some very famous stories about uh, Freud's difficulty with uh, with evolutionary theory, for example, and, and so on, which I can go on about. But the point is that uh, that they, at a, at a quite early stage, they begin to um, they begin to have conflicts around some of these things. Jung has <clears throat> what what happens? They begin discussing the question of how paranoia and psychosis develops. And uh, Freud has already a rather well-developed notion about how psychosis is a product of certain uh, narcissistic uh, elements that arise out of early homosexual relationships, with, so that, that there's a uh, repressed homosexuality that then gets projected onto other male figures and but since that has to be rejected, has to be censored, basically it rebounds onto the uh, psych to the individual who's who's repressed these feeling these homosexual drives, and that combination leads to um, leads to uh, paranoia and what we might call paranoid schizophrenia. Even. 
but the, the deal there is, as I said earlier, for Freud is that you first have an element that's in consciousness, it gets repressed, it gets projected, and it rebounds. So you have a withdrawal of, you have what's called a withdrawal of libido or a withdrawal of psychological energy from the object. Jung says, well, yeah, that, that's, that's probably part in here, but here's one of the places where Jung begins to talk about what we would subsequently call the collective unconscious. It's, it's so weird hearing you explain Freud's theories, which I don't know much about. They just seem so... It just seems so wrong. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, he's an, I have to say this. Freud was an extraordinary genius. I'm, I'm quite critical of Freud, but I've got my reasons for being critical of Freud. And there's, of course, hardly anything, very, very little now in, in, in psychoanalysis. There are very, very few really, really clear-cut Freudians anymore. Um, really? Well, and... <laughs> Quite frankly, I don't know that there are that many clear-cut Jungians uh. anymore. <laughs> I mean, we all, we all theory in both in both camps has, has developed, and and the, the process of doing psychotherapy in, in I would say in, in either group is has gone through many many transformations. But we'll, 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 which we'll, is only natural. Which right? is only natural. Uh, you have you know Melanie Klein who comes along and and, and the yeah. object relations theorists and the self psychologists and every everyone else and pretty soon uh, I think you would be hard pressed to find somebody in the psychoanalytic world who F Sigmund Freud would say yes that's exact you're doing it exactly yeah. right okay I think okay. that would be a bit of a that would be hard to find right mm -hmm. now and I'm not not hundred percent sure that you wouldn't have the same thing with with the um, with the Jungians. It's a little less so there. I can tell you why I think that's the case. Anyway, getting back to getting back to this. So, but Jung says they're having this discussion around paranoia. It has to do with uh, a book uh, that was written by a, a man called a memory, a memory of my mental illness by Paul Schreber. And Jung says, uh, who had who had some very serious, uh, uh, he was he was a, a very seriously disturbed uh, paranoid schizophrenic by the way we would talk about it today. And Jung says, well, yes, I I, I understand that there are these, you know, the, there's this repression of uh, some some elements that that get repressed into the unconscious, but I think that there are uh, imaginal elements, uh, there are images, there are there's material in the unconscious that was never in consciousness. So the unconscious for you now now you now you're kind of at the heart of a, a big distinction between the two of them. Basically, for Freud, there's nothing in the unconscious that wasn't first in consciousness. There's a little variant in there called primal repression, which I can talk about, but fundamentally, you have to have had the desire, you have to have had the drive, has to have been active and has to have been repressed in order for it to be in the unconscious. Jung says, this very early stage, I think there's material in that is in the unconscious intrinsically or innately or whatever word you want to put on it. There's a lot of arguments going on about what that is. And, well, they both kind of go along. So this is right when, when uh, Jung writes uh, 
Wandlungen and Symbole their libido, the transformation and symbols of the libido, which down the road, when he revises it, becomes symbols of transformation, volume five of the collected works. And Freud writes Totem and Taboo, where he tries to vindicate the Oedipus complex as a universal phenomenon. For, for Jung, because of this idea that there's, there's material in the unconscious that wasn't first in consciousness, and, and frankly, that that's the really important material, that's the mythic material, that he's, he's seeing in his work with psychotic patients at the Berkholsley. He's, he, there's a way in which, for Jung, projection, not repression, becomes the, the driving force of the psyche. Because these, these elements, as he calls them, primordial images, or these very, these, this material that's in the unconscious, innately, intrinsically, there, there's a, a lot of discussion going on uh, in the Jungian literature around which one of these, how to think about this, but for the time being, just leaving it, that there's, there's an unconscious, and it has stuff in it that is there to begin with, and that gets projected onto the outside world. In other words, it, and this is where they, so you get a d- distinction between uh, projection and repression between these two, which is, is, a, is a fundamental distinction between them. How, which mechanism is the real driving force for psychological phenomena? Because Freud is looking at things that have always been had previously been in consciousness and then get repressed into the unconscious. There's a way in which Freud's system is always looking backwards, temporally. This is a, another distinction. So, because something is in the unconscious was first in consciousness, that means that a, the child has this Oedipal impulse and it gets locked away in the unconscious. But that means that analytically, clinically, you have to move back towards that prior moment when the repression took place. Jung's first major psychological work is his dissertation, his his dissertation for his MD, which is called, uh, which is a study of what in those days they called a somnambulist, and there's a lot of stuff around this. The, the, the subject in, of the, was actually his first cousin. Uh, there's a lot of family stuff that went on around this. But basically what Jung observed, and this, this is a seance. This is studying a seance yes. or a series of seances, which sounds a little odd, although this had really begun with uh, William James in the United States. There was a lot of study going on around these these what we would now call parapsychological phenomena, whether they're seances or uh, other other kinds of phenomena. But this was the late 1800s. Yes. And this was fairly commonplace. Oh, there, it was all over the place in the United States. That's why James was mm-hmm. was going around now. James' work on this on extraordinary becomes it, it plays a role in the variety of religious experiences, and there's a lot of other things he was criticized. Uh, James was quite old by this point. He was criticized by uh, people like his student, G. Stanley Hall, at Clark University, which is where Freud and Jung went to the States Mm -hmm. the first time, and and they met with James. But it's really with James that it begins. James says, well, 
don't be embarrassed. This is a psychological phenomenon. I yeah. want to understand what's going on. It's not that I necessarily believe in spirits, but these people are interesting to study. And Jung is saying something very similar to that. But what he finds, just briefly on that, is that what, the way he interprets the seances, or the phenomena of the seances, is that this young girl, who, as I say, is in fact his, his cousin, but he hides that in the writing. Uh, this young girl, uh, she's, she's just in the early stages of puberty, and she goes through a series of uh, sort of uh, spirit possessions, you might call them, where she seems to move to ever deeper, deeper and more mature and more universal mother-like qualities. So Jung says, <clears throat> what I think is going on here is you have a, uh, an adolescent who is uh, exploring her future possibilities of psychological development. So this, this somnambulistic uh, trance-like phenomena uh, that we're observing is really a way in which the psyche is trying to move towards future states. So that means that, in, at least in some subset of important psychological phenomena, the, the, the trajectory of the phenomenon is toward the future, not towards the past. So Freud's basically stuck, Freud's system is basically retrospective. Something happened in the past, it is unresolved, it is undischarged, it is, it is, it is causing conflict, and we have to get back to that, that point of origin in order to release the, uh, the mechanism that's causing the, the psychological disturbance. Jung says, no, uh, at least some phenomena, some important psychological phenomena, are attempts to move from where you are now into a future state. And the problem is getting around that, getting around the, the impediments to moving forward yes. with your life. So there's a way in which, uh, to be sort of um, programmatic about it, a Jungian analysis, and, and mind you, I'm being programmatic here, I mean, it, it's sort of the sure. sketching it. A Jungian analysis, in principle, sort of starts from the point of view of where are you now and where do you need to go and why can't you get there? Yeah. And the material that the unconscious, in, in that reading, the material that the unconscious presents, whether it's in dreams, uh, myths, or in, in other ways, is, is an attempt on the part of the unconscious to provide the material you need in order to make that move to go forward. So, uh, although I don't think any of us, Jung, Jung is very clear that, that, you know, understanding a person's life history up to the point where you're at is, is important. You don't just sure. say, well, forget about all of that stuff, right. you know, now we'll just go forward. That's not the way it works. But there's a very real way in which a Jungian analyst will say, well, why is this person here now? And where do they need to go to move forward? And that's usually because something, some, there is some impediment, but it's an impediment in the here and now. Yes. Not something that you've been dragging along behind you. Things, you know, another way of putting it is, okay, things have worked pretty well up to this point. 
You know, life has gone on reasonably well. Now you're here in my office. What broke down? What isn't working anymore? What is your unconscious providing as a commentary on that? Uh, what material is coming to you that is in fact intended to help you move forward? That's one way of thinking about what individuation is, is, is that ability to move forward, to overcome whatever the present impediment is. And so Freud didn't like that. Well, Freud, 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 is, Freud is really committed to this retrospective view. It causes a problem for him that he uh, takes up in totem and taboo because he somehow has to get this process started in the first place. And that's where he goes back to his myth of the primal horde and the killing of the primal father and a lot of other stuff that happens in totem and taboo. That's another distinction that I draw between the two of them. Uh, in, in my book, I didn't... Uh, I didn't identify at that point, clearly identify this distinction between uh, that, that the objects, the material in the unconscious is either there by virtue of repression or it's there innately. That's not clearly, I didn't clearly spell that out in the book, but it's an important part of this projection repression distinction. The, the reason for the projection repression distinction is the, is the distinction between material that has been that has been that is in the unconscious because of repression or material that's on the unconscious because of its innate presence there. Uh, so we've got the, this temporal dif- distinction which is retrospective prospective. Yes. There's repression projection, temporal the temporal distinction past and future, or in the, the direction in which you look clinically, both clinically and theoretically. The third one that I, that I had uh, in, in the book is the distinction between image and word. And that has a, has, a, has a subcategory, I suppose we could call it 3A, which is the distinction between sign and symbol. They have a relationship to one another. Freud basically, uh, and, and this gets pulled, this gets very, very clearly articulated in an interesting place in, in, in by the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, also makes this point, that for, for, the, for Freud, the issue is to bring psychological material into language. Language is where it you really operate. And Lacan, for example, makes a remark that the, the distinction between Freud and Jung is a distinction between word and image. And that's exactly what I say uh, in, in my book. And uh, without having read Lacan at the time, I bumped into this mm. subsequently. So it's fairly clear that, that Jung is working, and, and you'll see this absolutely in the Red Book. Jung comes along and says the, the image, 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 image. So what, what is an image? Well, an image, uh, th- this is, a, again, a contested question. We're not, I'm not, I don't think we have a good idea of what exactly image means for Jung. I'm doing a lot of work on that myself right now, trying to, trying to tease that out in greater detail. But it does have this quality of what you might call in another setting a gestalt. In other words, it's a, it's a complete uh, element of the world. There's, there's many elements to it. For Freud, the, the, the real key to, a, to Freud's approach to analysis is to bring unconscious material to language, to see how, how it, and so you'll get, for example, Lacan saying, 
and I think this it comes very close to, to Freud, that the, the structure of the unconscious is like a language. The unconscious is structured like a language, by which he means metaphor, metonymy, other kinds of figures of speech are really what you're dealing with in an analysis. And so you really do have the talking cure. Freud would find it very odd to tell a patient to start drawing pictures. Jung has people drawing pictures all the time. Um, Jung draws pictures all the time. The Red Book is loaded with pictures. So this is this image-like world. Um, James Hillman comes along later and he works, he has a different approach to talking, to thinking about the image, but he's still looking at larger contexts and so on of meaning and how they all fit together. Now the symbol-sign distinction, Jung, Jung says Freud is basically interested in signs. In other words, uh, a given uh, symbol, what Freud would call a symbol, is really a sign that's pointing towards, say, the Oedipus complex. In other words, there is a known referent the, 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 for, for what Jung's problem with, with Freud's idea of the sign is that ultimately the the Freudian symbol, which Jung says is really a sign, points towards a known conclusion. You know, Freud says basically, and uh, in, in, there's a footnote in the third edition of the three essays on theory of sexuality where Freud says the Oedipus complex is the shibboleth upon which we judge psychoanalysis. It is the referent, ultimately for anything that is called psychoanalysis. Jung says the symbol is the best possible representation of something that we don't understand. For Jung, the symbol is always ambiguous. The symbol is there trying to show us something that we don't understand. And that ties back to this future orientation uh, it ties back to the idea of projection, which also sort of moves you into new spaces. And uh, he says, you know, Freud's, when Freud talks about symbols, he's really talking about a sign. A sign has a definite referent. Now, there's a lot of other things you can say about that. Uh, Freud is very clear about what he calls overdetermination, which is that the symbols have more have multiple meanings to them. That you know that you, you say something, you have a slip of the tongue, you, have, you know, a parapraxis, and there's there's a, various elements that that play a role in that parapraxis. It's not just straight linear for Freud. I want to be I don't want to mischaracterize what what Freud is doing, but for Jung. Somebody, somebody has a, a, a dream, the dream is, is always trying to, to point towards something that you really don't know, it's, but it's not a don't know in the sort of repressed sense, because repression, although it plays a role in Jung's theory, it's not the centerpiece of it. It's trying to show you something about the, the structure of the world, the, way you, the world you inhabit, that you do not understand. Uh, I think I think one way of of, of thinking about that is um, so uh, you take a, you know a religious figure Jesus or Buddha or uh, Moses whomever you want 
and you say with, with, with Jesus, you have 2,000 years of Christian theology trying to figure out what the heck are we really talking about here. So there's a symbol of the self, you see, that needs to be unfolded and, and commands, demands an unfolding over thousands of years. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Jung will say, and he sort of implies this about late Christianity, it's one of the I think it's one of the issues with late Christianity for Jung, but he'll say that eventually a symbol can be, uh, can be exhausted, it dies because you do unfold all of its potential meaning. But that can take a very long time. So Jung, Jung sees the collapse of the uh, ancient religions right around the time of the rise, the beginnings of Christianity, as, as that the, the, uh, the ancient myths and so on had, had exhausted themselves. There was no way that they could be, that they, yeah. they revealed no new information. So the, the impulse, that, re, that religious impulse, that demand for that kind of symbolic space begins to transfer to a new religion, Christianity, that then absorbs, begins to now make use of the same energy that had exhausted itself in the ancient mythologies and becomes the the project of the next 2,000 years. And you can just say the same thing about, about Buddhism and, and, and other religions. So he has this, uh, what I call in, in, in the book, this life cycle of the symbol. Uh, eventually, they wear themselves out. Yeah. They exhaust themselves. But with these great cultural symbols, these great cultural symbols uh, it can take a very long time now. Uh, one of the ways that you can think about, about psychopathology or why people come to see their analyst is that their symbolic, the, the dimensions of their symbolic world has, has run out. Uh, it's exhausted itself and they're kind of left adrift in yeah. consequence. So you then turn to the unconscious in any number of ways to see if there's something new that begins to use that same energy again to to move you forward you know you have to you have to detach yourself from what's not working anymore but find more importantly find the symbols that pull you forward into a, into a new psychic space you know the things that make make jung distinct from freud in in my reading of it now many years ago uh, and, and then you know eventually then we have to start talking about why he uh, begins to frame this around archetypes and so on it's, it's extremely important with another a, a sort of um, another difference between these the two men was that uh, and, and it is very important Freud was in Vienna working with neurotics people who are what we would basically sort of popularly called neurotics or hysterics. Jung is in, 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 at the Bergolsley working with psychotics, people who have major psychiatric disorders. And it's in that space, it's, and, and Freud did not 
want to work with psychotic patients. He even, he even remarks to Jung at one point when he's visiting Zurich, he remarks, I don't understand how you can deal with these people, they're so ugly. He really didn't. Uh, and the only real study of a psychotic patient that he does is, is this study at a distance of uh, Paul Schreber's memoir of, of a schizophrenic, a, a real psychotic process. And that, that's, that's an interesting subject in its own right. But what Jung is seeing with the psychotics, with the, and, and mind you, I mean, they didn't have any medications, so he's basically seeing these people in florid states. The Burgholsley was what we might call a milieu treatment environment, whereas he's living in the hospital with his family. And he's, he, you know, nowadays uh, people are medicated, uh, we're not, by and large, not spending long periods of time necessarily with a single patient. He would, he and the other doctors were spending hours with these people. They were with them all day long. So there's a lot of observation going on. Now, some of it is clearly, um, there's a real problem around some of the observations because I, I think with the, the Jungian, the people around Jung, they got, they themselves got enamored of some of their theories and went looking for for data to support some of their ideas. But basically, Jung uh, is saying, and, and not just Jung, Bloiler uh, is interested in this the same way that, that when you listen carefully to a psychotic person, a schizophrenic, you begin to realize that what seems like nonsense in their discourse, in the way that they're talking, what seems like this uh, nonsense, in many instances actually has a great deal of meaning associated with it. But you need to listen in a particular way. You have to understand how it is that they're constructing their discourse. And as Jung does that, as he listens to these psychotic patients, he basically comes down and says, it, this sounds very mythological. Yeah. It sounds like they, it, it reminds me of the way myths sound. So this puts a spin, both Jung and, and Freud and all the rest of them are very interested in mythology and they're, they're I mean, Freud's back to the Oedipus myth and, and other things. But Jung has a little different point of view on it. It's basically he's saying if you go into this, he, he's, he's, he's assuming that this, well, it's not assuming, he's sort of arguing that these psychotics have actually dropped down into this deeper level of the unconscious, and that what he's hearing from that deep level of the unconscious is mythological. And all of this business about is there pre-existing pre uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm being very careful about how I say that because this is an area of considerable discussion and controversy in the Jungian theory world right now is what are we talking about when we talk about innate, when we talk about any of this stuff, how does it exist prior to consciousness? So that's why I'm being as careful as I am in how I choose my words because it is a controversial area. Uh, this is where we then get to the beginnings of the Red Book, for example. As I, I think, and this, I'm, I'm a little bit out of, I don't, I don't think we're quite, we don't quite understand the origins of, of the Red Book. My sense is, or my suspicion is, or my theory is, 
that Jung really says, well, look, uh, Sigmund, uh, I'm going to go and explore that area. In other words, he doesn't have a psychotic break. One of the things he's saying is, I, I think I can go down into that space and see what's there. Uh, I'm going to do a self-analysis myself. You're not the only one who can do a self-analysis. I can do a self-analysis too. See, what Freud does is he, he, he kind of prohibits, actually I make a big point of this in, in the book, he, he pretty much says, I've done the self-analysis, my self-analysis is normative, you guys can't go there and do that. You can't repeat the fundamental experiment. The basic experiment is my self-analysis. And everything thereafter are just adjustments to what I found in, in my self-analysis. Um, did, did anybody have a problem with him saying that? Oh, uh, yeah, Jung did. <laughs> <laughs> Jung is basically... Was he the only one? Uh, I, you know, that, that gets us into a whole another area, which is, is what the heck was going on with the people immediately around Freud. Right. It's, it's yeah. a, Phyllis Grossguth uh, wrote a book on, on, on what's called the, 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 the circle, uh, late in the relationship between Jung and, and Freud, uh, Jones, uh, and Abraham uh, come to Freud and say, "Look, you know, you're you're having trouble with with uh, old Carl up there in Zurich, you know, mm -hmm. thing." And and of course, they're sort of uh, I wouldn't exactly say plotting against Jung, but it kind of comes down yeah. to that. There, there's this, and and Freud's well aware. Freud comments on the fact, and and so does Jung. I mean, they're as they start to argue, as they start, as things begin to fall apart. Um, it's as if they are uh, young or Freud is, is, is recreating his primal horde myth where all of the sons want mm. to, they all want to be, uh, connected to dad, sure. the totem, the totem animal. Freud is, you know, Freud has this incredible, uh, wouldn't exactly call it a death wish, but he keeps fainting. These these fainting spells. Right. There's all kinds of, of uh, neurotic behavior in this inner circle. And since Jung is over in 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 Zurich, he's you know several hundred miles away from Vienna. And the um, the ones around Freud, they come to him and say, "Well, look, we we really have to be sure that we can protect the psychoanalytic movement from from any any outside." influences any 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 destructive influences and by the way you know Jung is a destructive influence yeah. so Freud says well that sounds like a good idea to me uh, I'm going and in fact he even gives each one of them a signet ring this this small circle around him to uh, as 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 from his collection of antiquities as as a marker of their affiliation to him so it gets it gets very weird at this point this is you know all of this you know we're going to form this secret society to make sure that the psychoanalytic movement never gets undermined by someone like Jung who's of course not told about this and not invited to participate in it or anything else so they've immediately and this is it's a year or two before the final break that they're doing this, and but they're basically forming a a circle around Freud to protect him, mainly from Jung, and to gradually ensure that Jung gets pushed out of 
the uh, out of the psychoanalytic movement, which so, of course Jung proceeds to oblige them with because he gets increasingly angry about stuff that's going on around him uh, until you know they finally uh, he finally uh, Jung obviously had a temper and um, he finally sort of blows his you know stack at, at Freud and, and that leads to the final the final break. So but would you say that Jung was pushed out or that Jung left voluntarily? It's both. Both. It's both. How how Jungian? How Jungian. <laughs> <laughs> It's both. I, I, I think that they. I, I don't think that we have. Uh, I don't think we have yet a really fully, a, a really full, clear idea of all of the politics that was going on. Sure. There. I think there was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, we do know, for example, that uh, you know, Jung had revealed a lot. Freud early on, there was this sort of mutual analysis that they were trying to conduct, and he'd he'd revealed things like the uh, the sexual abuse as a child uh, shortly after their first meeting. It's pretty clear that Freud was sharing elements of what he knew about Jung from their own private conversations yeah. with other members of of his inner circle. Again, we, we, I, I at least haven't explored all of all the elements of that. Uh, other things have, you know, taken over my interests subsequent mm -hmm. to doing this work. Sure. But it's pretty clear that that there was a, a very uh, complicated and rather uh, nasty campaign against Jung <clears throat> by some of the inner circle around Freud. That Freud didn't do anything. If if anything, he enabled it. That went on easily up into the 1930s. I think if one wants to sort of bring this part of things to a conclusion, it's that the, the relationship between Freud and Jung, which frequently gets characterized as this sort of, uh, you know, Jung was Freud's student until they fell out with one another, end of story, is really a very, an immensely complex story. Despite its relative brevity, I mean, it's like I said, it's only six yes. or seven years total. I'm, I can I can tell you with some confidence that both men, for the rest of their lives, continued to deal with this. It it played a role in in Freud's essays on metapsychology. It played a role in Jung, all the way to the end of both of their lives, and it still does. And uh, if you really want to understand the origins of psychoanalysis and analytical psychology, uh, unpacking this, the intricacies of that relationship is a very important part of getting a handle on all of this. I'd like to thank Dr. Hoganson for his time that day. After we finished recording, he agreed to a second interview to discuss the book he's edited with Thomas Kirsch about a conference held at the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco after the publication of Jung's Red Book. It contains the essays that were presented at that conference by an international group of distinguished scholars in analytical psychology, including Dr. Hoganson. You can visit our website, speakingofjung.com, for more information about the books that were mentioned today as well as links to some of Dr. Hoganson's work. On the website, you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. 
This podcast is also available on iTunes and on Stitcher. Special thank you to Murray Stein, Michael Walters, and Rick Boos. With gratitude to Sean Lau, Charlie Arthur, and Diane Braden, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. Speaking of Jung.